Chapter Twelve of the Empire of Russia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tavarish. The Empire of Russia from the remotest periods to the present time, by John Stevens Cabot Abbott. Chapter Twelve. Ivan the Fourth, his minority from 1533 to 1546. Vasily at the chase, attention to distinguished foreigners, the autocracy, splendor of the edifices, slavery, aristocracy, infancy of Ivan IV, regency of Helen, conspiracies and tumults, war with Sigismund of Poland, death of Helen, struggles of the nobles, appalling sufferings of Dmitri, incursions of the Tatars, Successful Conspiracy, Ivan IV at the Chase, Coronation of Ivan IV. Under Vasily, the Russian court attained a degree of splendor which had before been unknown. The Baron of Herbenstein thus describes the appearance of the monarch when engaging in the pleasures of the chase. As soon as we saw the monarch entering the field, we dismounted and advanced to meet him on foot. He was mounted upon a magnificent charger, gorgeously caparisoned he wore upon his head a tall cap embroidered with precious stones and surmounted by gilded plumes which waved in the wind a poniard and two knives were attached to his girdle he had upon his right alley tsar of kazan armed with a bow and arrows at his left two young princes one of whom held an axe and the other a number of arms his suite consisted of more than three hundred cavaliers the chase was continued over the boundless plains for many days and often weeks. When night approached, the whole party, often consisting of thousands, dismounted and reared their village of tents. The tent of the emperor was ample, gorgeous, and furnished with all the appliances of luxury. Hounds were first introduced into these sports in Russia by Vasily. The evening hours were passed in festivity, with abundance of good cheer and in narrating the adventures of the day. Whenever the emperor appeared in public, he was preceded by esquires chosen from among the young nobles, distinguished for their beauty, the delicacy of their features, and the perfect proportion of their forms. Clothed in robes of white satin and armed with small hatches of silver, they marched before the emperor and appeared to strangers, say his contemporaries, like angels descended from the skies. Vasily was especially fond of magnificence in the audiences which he gave to foreign ambassadors. To impress them with an idea of the vast population and wealth of Russia and of the glory and power of the sovereign, Vasily ordered, on the day of presentation, that all the ordinary avocations of life should cease, and the citizens, clothed in their richest dresses, were to crowd around the walls of the Kremlin. All the young nobles in the vicinity, with their retinues, were summoned, the troops were under arms, and the most distinguished officers, glittering in the panoply of war, rode to meet the envoys. Footnote. Francis Dacalo relates that when he was received by the emperor, 40,000 soldiers were under arms, in the richest uniform, extending from the Kremlin to the hotel of the ambassadors. In the hall of audience, Crowded to its utmost capacity, there was silence as of the grave. 
the king sat upon his throne his bonnet upon one side of him his sceptre upon the other his nobles were seated round upon couches draped in purple and embroidered with pearls and gold following the example of ivan the third vasily was unwearied in his endeavors to induce foreigners of distinction particularly artists physicians and men of science to take up their residence in russia any stranger distinguished for genius or capability of any kind who entered russia found it not easy to leave the kingdom a greek physician of much celebrity from constantinople visited moscow vasily could not find it in his heart to relinquish so rich a prize and detained him with golden bonds which the unhappy man mourning for his wife and children in vain endeavored to break away at last the sultan was influenced to write in behalf of the greek permit he wrote mark to return to constantinople to rejoin his family he went to russia only for a temporary visit the emperor replied for a long time mark has served me to his and my perfect satisfaction he is now my lieutenant at novgorod send to him his wife and children the power of the sovereign was absolute his will was the supreme law the lives the fortunes of the clergy the laity the lords the citizens were dependent upon his pleasure the russians regarded their monarch as the executor of the divine will their ordinary language was god and the prince decree it the russians generally defend his autocracy as the only true principle of government the philosophic karamzin writes ivan the third and vasily knew how to establish permanently the nature of one government by constituting in autocracy the necessary attribute of empire its sole constitution and the only basis of safety force and prosperity this limitless power of the prince is regarded as tyranny in the eye of strangers because in their inconsiderate judgment they forget that tyranny is the abuse of autocracy and that the same tyranny may exist in a republic when citizens or powerful magistrates oppress society autocracy does not signify the absence of laws since law is everywhere where there is any duty to be performed and the first duty of the princes is it not to watch over the happiness of their people to the traveller in the age of vasili russia appeared like a vast desert compared with the other countries of europe the sparseness of the habitations the extended plains dense forests and roads rough and desolate attested that russia was still in the cradle of its civilization but as one approached moscow the signs of animated life rapidly increased convoys crowded the grand route which traversed vast prairies waving with grain and embellished with all the works of industry in the midst of this plain rose the majestic domes and the glittering towers of moscow the convents in massive piles scattered around resembled beautiful villages the palace of the kremlin alone was a city in itself around this as the nucleus but spreading over a wide extent were the streets of the metropolis the palaces of the nobles the mansions of the wealthy citizens and the shops of the artisans 
the city in that day was indeed one of the magnificent distances almost every dwelling being surrounded by a garden in luxurious cultivation in the year fifteen twenty the houses by count which was ordered by the grand prince amounted to forty one thousand five hundred the metropolitan bishop the grand dignitaries of the court the princes and lords occupied splendid mansions of wood reared by grecian and italian architects in the environs of the kremlin on wide and beautiful streets there were a large number of very magnificent churches also built of wood the bazaars or shops filled with the rich merchandise of europe and asia were collected in one quarter of the city and were surrounded by a high stone wall as a protection against the armies domestic or foreign which were ever sweeping over the land from the eleventh to the sixteenth century slavery may be said to have been universal in russia absolutely every man but the monarch was a slave the highest nobles and princes avowed themselves the slaves of the monarch there was no law but the will of the sovereign he could deprive any one of property and of life and there was no power to call him to account but the poniard of the assassin or the sword of rebellion in like manner the peasant serfs were slaves of the nobles with no privileges whatever except such as the humanity of the selfishness of their lords might grant but gradually custom controlling public opinion assumed almost the form of law the kings established certain rules for the promotion of industry and the regulation of commerce merchants and scholars attained a degree of practical independence which was based on indulgence rather than any constitutional right and during the reign of vasili the law alone could doom the serf to death and he began to be regarded as a man as a citizen protected by the laws from this time we begin to see the progress of humanity and of higher conceptions of social life it is perhaps worthy of record that anciently the peasants or serfs were universally designated by the name smerdi which simply means smelling offensively is the exhalation of an offensive odor the necessary property of a people imbruted by poverty and filth in america that unpleasant effluvium has generally been considered a peculiarity pertaining to the colored race philosophic observation may show that it is a disease the result of uncleanliness but like other diseases often transmitted from the guilty parent to the unoffending child we have known white people who were exceedingly offensive in this respect and colored people who were not so at all the pride of illustrious birth was carried to the greatest extreme and a noble would blush to enter into any friendly relations whatever with a plebeian the nobles considered all business degrading excepting war and spent the weary months when not under arms in indolence in their castles the young women of the higher families were in a deplorable state of captivity etiquette did not allow them to mingle with society or even to be seen except by their parents and they had no employment except sewing or knitting 
no mental culture and no sources of amusement it was not the custom of the young men to choose their wives but the father of the maiden selected some eligible match for his daughter and made propositions to the family of his contemplated son-in-law stating the dowry he would confer upon the bride and the parties were frequently married without ever having previously seen each other the death of vassili transmitted the crown to his only son ivan an infant but three years of age by the will of the dying monarch the regency during the minority of the child was placed in the hands of the youthful mother the princess helen the brothers of vassili and twenty nobles of distinction were appointed as counsellors for the queen regent two men however in concert with helen soon took the reins of government into their own hands one of these was a sturdy ambitious old noble michel glinsky an uncle of helen the other was a young and handsome prince ivan telenev who was suspected of tender liaisons with his royal mistress the first act of the new government was to assemble all the higher clergy in the church of the assumption where the metropolitan bishop gave his benediction to the child destined to reign over russia and who was there declared to be accountable to god only for his actions at the same time ambassadors were sent to all the courts of europe to announce the death of vassili and the ascension of ivan the fourth to the throne but a week passed after these ceremonies ere the prince yuri one of the brothers of vassili was arrested charged with conspiracy to wrest the crown from his young nephew he was thrown into prison where he was left to perish by the slow torture of starvation this severity excited great terror in moscow the russians ever strongly attached to their sovereigns now found themselves under the reign of an oligarchy which they detested conspiracies and rumors of conspiracies agitated the court many were arrested upon suspicion alone and cruelly chained were thrown into dungeons michel glinsky indignant of the shameful intimacy evidently existing between helen and telenev ventured to remonstrate with the regent boldly and earnestly assuring her that the eyes of the court were scrutinizing her conduct and that such vice disgraceful anywhere was peculiarly hideous upon a throne where all looked for examples of virtue the audacious noble though president of the consul was immediately arrested under the accusation of treason and was thrown into a dungeon where soon after he was assassinated a reign of terror now commenced and imprisonment and death awaited all those who undertook in any way to thwart the plans of helen and telenev Andrei, the youngest of the brothers of Vassili, a man of feeble character, now alone remained of the royal princes at court. He was nominally the tutor of his nephew, the young emperor Ivan IV, and though a prominent member of the council, which Vassili had established, he had no influence in the government, which had been grasped so energetically and despotically by Helen and her paramour Telenev at length andre trembling for his own life timidly raised the banners of revolt and gathered quite an army around him 
but he had no energy to conduct a war. He was speedily taken and, loaded with chains, was thrown into a dungeon where, after a few weeks of most cruel deprivations, he miserably perished. Thirty of the lords implicated with him in the rebellion were hung upon the trees around Novgorod. Many others were put to torture and perished on the rack. Helen, surrendering herself to the dominion of guilty love, developed the ferocity of a tigress. Sigismund, king of Poland, taking advantage of the general discontent of the Russians under the sway of Helen, formed an alliance with a horde upon the lower waters of the Don, and invaded Russia, burning and destroying with mercilessness which demons could not have surpassed. Prince Tilenev headed an army to repel him. The pen wearies in describing the horrors of these scenes. One hundred thousand Russians are now flying before one hundred and fifty thousand Polanders. Hundreds of miles of territory are ravaged. Cities and villages are stormed, plundered, burned. Women and children are cut down and trampled beneath the feet of cavalry, or escape shrieking into the forests, where they perish of exposure and starvation. But an army of recruits comes to the aid of the Russians, and now one hundred and fifty thousand Polanders are driven before two hundred thousand Russians. They sweep across the frontier like dust driven by the tornado. And now the cities and villages of Poland blaze, her streams run red with blood. The Polish wives and daughters, in their turn, struggle, shriek, and die. From exhaustion, the warfare ceases. The two antagonists, mourning and bleeding, wait for a few years, but to recover sufficient strength to renew the strife, and then the brutal, demoniac butchery commences anew. Such is the history of man. In this brief but bloody war, the city of Starodub in Russia was besieged by an army of Poles and Tatars. The assault was urged with the most desperate energy and fearlessness. The defense was conducted with equal ferocity. Thousands fell on both sides in every mangled form of death. At last, the besiegers undermined the walls, and placing beneath hundreds of barrels of gunpowder, as with the burst of a volcano, uphove the massive bastions to the clouds. They fell in a storm of ruin upon the city, setting it on fire in many places. Through the flames and over the smoldering ruins, Poles and Tatars, blackened with smoke and smeared with blood, rushed into the city, and in a few hours thirteen thousand of the inhabitants were weltering in their gore. None were left alive. And this is but a specimen of the wars which raged for ages. The world now has but the faintest conception of the seas of blood and woe through which humanity has waded to attain even its present feeble recognition of fraternity. In this, as in every war with Poland, Russia was gaining. Ever wrestling from her rival the provinces of Lithuania, and attaching them to the gigantic empire. 
In the year 1534, Hélène commenced the enterprise of surrounding the whole of Moscow with a ditch and a wall capable of resisting the batterings of artillery. An Italian engineer named Petroc Maloy superintended these works. The foundation of the walls was laid with imposing religious ceremonies. The wall was crowned with four towers at the openings of the four gates. Helen was so conscious of the importance of augmenting the population of Russia that she offered land and freedom from taxes for a term of years to all who would migrate into her territory from Poland. Perhaps also she had a double object, wishing to weaken a rival power. Much counterfeit coin was found to be in circulation. The regent issued an edict that anyone found guilty of depreciating the current standard of coin should be punished with death, and his death was to be barbarously inflicted by first cutting off the hands of the culprit and then pouring melted lead through a tunnel down his throat. On the 3rd of April, 1538, Helen, in the prime of life, and with all her sins in full vigor and unrepented, retired to her bed at night, suddenly and seriously sick. Someone had succeeded in administering to her a dose of poison. She shrieked for a few hours in mortal agony, and soon after the hour of twelve was told, her spirit ascended to meet God in judgment. Being dead, she had no favors to confer, no terrors to execute, and her festering remains were the same day hurried ignominiously to the grave. Her paramour Telenev alone wept over her death. Russia rejoiced, and yet with trembling. Whose strong arm would now seize the helm of the tempest-torn ship of state, no one could tell. The young prince Ivan IV was but seven years of age at the death of his mother Helen. For several days there was ominous silence in Moscow, the stillness which preceded the storm. The death of a regent had come so suddenly, so unexpectedly, that none were prepared for it. A week passed away, during which time parties were forming and conspiracies ripening, while Telenev was desperately endeavoring to retain that power which he had so despotically wielded in conjunction with his royal mistress. The prince Vasily Shuisky, who had occupied the first place in the council of Vasily, opened the drama. Having secured the cooperation of a large number of nobles, he declared himself the head of the government, arrested all the favorites of Helen, and threw Telenev, bound with chains, into a dungeon. There he was left to die of starvation, barbarity which, though in accordance with that brutal age, even all the similar excesses of Telenev could not justify. The beautiful sister of Telenev, Agrippine by name, was torn from the saloons her loveliness had embellished, and was imprisoned for life in a convent. The victims of the cruelty of Helen, who were still languishing in prison, were set at liberty. Shuisky was a widower, and in the fiftieth year of his age. He wished to strengthen his power by engaging the cooperation of the still formidable energies of the Horde at Kazan, 
and accordingly married quite hurriedly the daughter of the Tsar of the Horde. But the regal diadem proved to him but a crown of thorns. Conspiracy succeeded conspiracy, and Shuisky felt compelled to enlist all the terrors of the dungeon, the scaffold, and the block to maintain his place. Six months only passed away, ere he too was writhing upon the royal couch in the agonies of death, whether paralyzed by poison or smitten by hand of God, the day of judgment alone can reveal. Ivan Shuisky, the brother of the deceased usurper, now stepped into the dangerous post which death had so suddenly rendered vacant. He was a weak man, assuming the most pompous airs, quite unable to discriminate between imposing grandeur and ridiculous parade. He soon became both despised and detested. This state of things encouraged the two hordes of Kazan and Torid to unite, and with an army of a hundred thousand men, they penetrated Russia almost unopposed, burning and plundering in all directions. Under these circumstances, the Metropolitan Bishop Joseph, a man of sincere piety and of very elevated character, and who enjoyed in the highest degree the confidence both of the aristocracy and the people, presented himself before the council, urged the incapacity of Ivan Shuisky to govern, and proposed that Ivan Belsky, a nobleman of great energy and moral worth, should be chosen regent. The proposal was carried by acclamation. So unanimous was the vote, so cordial was the adoption of the republican principle of election, that Ivan Shuisky was powerless and was merely dismissed. The new regent, sustained by the clergy and the aristocracy, governed the state with wisdom and moderation. All kinds of persecution ceased, and vigorous measures were adopted for the promotion of the public welfare. Old abuses were repressed, vicious governors deposed, and the rising flames of civil strife were quenched. Even the hitherto unheard of novelty of trial by jury was introduced. Jurors were chosen from among the most intelligent citizens. Though there was some bitter opposition among the corrupt nobles to these salutary reforms, the clergy, as a body, sustained them, and so did also even a majority of the lords. It was Christianity and the Church which introduced these humanizing measures. Among the innumerable tragedies of those days, let one be mentioned, illustrative to the terrific wrongs to which all the exposed under a despotic government. There was a young prince, Dmitri, a child, grandson of Vasily the Blind, whose claims to the throne were feared. He was thrown into prison and there forgotten. For forty-nine years he had now remained in a damp and dismal dungeon. He had committed no crime. He was accused of no crime. He was only feared that restive nobles might use him as an instrument for the furtherance of their plans. All the years of youth and of manhood had passed in darkness and misery. No beam of the sun ever penetrated his tomb. All unheeded, the tides of life surged in the world above him, while his mind with his body was wasting away in the long agony.
oh who can tell what days what nights he spent of tideless waveless sailless shoreless woe mercy now entered his cell but it was too late even for that angel visited to bring a gleam of joy his friends were all dead his name was forgotten on earth he knew nothing of the world or of its days his mind was enfeebled and even the slender shock of knowledge which he had possessed as a child had vanished away they broke off his chains and removed him from his dungeon to a comfortable chamber the poor old man dazzled by the light and bewildered by the change lingered joylessly and without a smile for a few weeks and died immortality alone offers a solution for these mysteries after death cometh the judgment the christian bishop joseph and ivan belsky the regent in cordial cooperation endeavored in all things to promote prosperity and happiness again there was a coalition of the tartars for the invasion of russia the three ords in kazan in the toroid and in the mouth of the volga united and in an army one hundred thousand strong with numerous cavalry and powerful artillery commenced their march the russian troops were hastily collected upon the banks of the oka there to take their stand and dispute the passage of the stream by order of the clergy prayers were offered incessantly in the churches by the day and by night that god would avert this terrible invasion the young prince ivan the fourth was now ten years of age the citizens of moscow were moved to tears and to the deepest enthusiasm on hearing their young prince in the church of the assumption offer aloud and fervently the prayer o heavenly father thou who didst protect our ancestors against the cruel tamerlane take us also under thy holy protection us in childhood and orphanage our mind and our body are still feeble and yet the nation looks to us for deliverance accompanied by the metropolitan joseph he entered the council and said the enemy is approaching decide for me whether it be best that i should remain here or go to meet the foe with one voice they exclaimed prince remain at moscow they then took a solemn oath to die if necessary for their prince the citizens came forward in crowds and volunteered for the defence of the walls the faubourgs were surrounded with palisades and batteries of artillery were placed to sweep in all directions the approaches to the city the enthusiasm was so astonishing that the russian analysts ascribe it to a supernatural cause on the thirtieth of july fifteen forty one the tartar army appeared upon the southern banks of the oka crowning all the heights which bordered the stream immediately they made an attempt to force the passage but the russians thoroughly prepared for their assault repelled them with prodigious slaughter night put an end to the contest the russians were elated with their success and waited eagerly for the morning to renew the strife 
they even hoped to be able to cross the river and to sweep the camp of their foes the fires of their bivouacs blazed all the night reinforcements were constantly arriving and their songs of joy floated across the water and fell heavily upon the hearts of the dismayed tartars at midnight the hun and the whole host conscious of their peril commenced a precipitate retreat in the haste abandoning many guns and much of their baggage the russians pursued the foe but were not able to overtake them so rapidly did they retrace their steps the news of the expulsion of the enemy spread rapidly through russia the conduct of the grand prince everywhere excited the most lively enthusiasm he entered the church and in an affecting prayer returned thanks to god for the deliverance the people with unanimity exclaimed grand prince your angelic prayers and your happy star have caused us to triumph awful however were the woes which fell upon those people who were on the line of march of the barbaric tartars ivan belsky the regent had now attained the highest degree of good fortune and in his own conscience and in the general approbation of the people he found ample recompense of his deeds of humanity and his patriotic exertions but envy that poison of society raised up against him enemies ivan shuisky who had been deposed by vote of the council organized a conspiracy among the disaffected nobles and on the night of the third of january fifteen forty two three hundred cavaliers surrounded the residences of the regent and of the metropolitan bishop seized them and hurried them to prison and in the prison finished their work by assassination of ivan belsky ivan shuisky sustained by the sabers of his partisans reassumed the government a new metropolitan bishop makar was appointed to take the place of joseph who was deposed and imprisoned the clergy overawed were silent the reign of silence was against commenced and the, all the posts of honor and influence were placed in the hands of partisans of shuisky the government such as it was was now in the hands of triumvirate consisting of ivan andrei and fyodor not a syllable of opposition would these men endure and the dungeon and the assassin's poniard silenced all murmurs the young prince ivan the fourth was now thirteen years of age he was endowed by nature with a mind of extraordinary sagacity and force but his education had been entirely neglected and the scenes of perfidy and violence he was continually witnessing were developing a character which menaced russia with many woes the infamous shuiskis sought to secure the friendship of the young prince by ministering in every possible way to his pleasures they led him to the chase encouraged whatever disposition he chanced to manifest and endeavored to train him in a state of feebleness and ignorance which might promote their ambitious plans the kremlin became the scene of constant intrigues cabal succeeded cabal the position of the triumvirate became month after month more perilous the young prince gave decisive indications of discontent it began to be whispered into his ears that it was time for him to assume the reins of government and he was assured that all russia was waiting 
eager to obey his orders. The metropolitan bishop, either from a sense of justice or of policy, also espoused the cause of the youthful sovereign. It was evident that another party was rising into power. On the 29th of December, 1534, Ivan IV went with a large party of his lords to the chase. Instructed beforehand in the measures he was to adopt, he, quite unexpectedly to the triumvirate, summoned all his lords around him, and, assuming an imperious and threatening tone, declared that the triumvirate had abused his extreme youth, had trampled upon justice, and, as culprits, deserved to die. In his great clemency, however, he decided to spare the lives of two, executing only one as an example to the nation. The oldest of the three, Andrei Shuisky, was immediately seized and handed over to the conductors of the hounds. They set the dogs upon him, and he was speedily torn to pieces in the presence of the company, and his mangled remains were scattered over the plain. The partisans of Shuisky, terrified by this deed, were afraid to utter a murmur. The nobles generally were alarmed, but it was evident that though they had escaped the violence of the triumvirate, they had fallen into hands equally to be dreaded. Confiscations and other acts of rigor rapidly succeeded, and the young prince, still too youthful to govern by the decision of his own mind, was quite under the control of the Glinskys, through whose counsel he had shaken off the triumvirate of the Shuiskis. Ivan the Fourth now made the tour of his kingdom, but with no other object than the promotion of his personal gratification. Most of his time was devoted to the excitements of the chase in the savage forests which spread over a large portion of his realms. He was always surrounded by a brilliant staff of nobles, and the sufferings of the people were all concealed from his view. The enormous expenses of his court were exacted from the people he visited, and his steps were followed by lamentations. In the year 1546, Ivan attained the 18th year of his age and made great preparations for his coronation. The imposing rites were to be performed at Moscow. On the 16th of January, the Grand Prince entered one of the saloons of his palaces while the nobles, the princes, the officers of the court, all richly dressed, were assembled in the antechamber. The confessor of the Grand Prince, having received from Ivan IV a crucifix, placed it upon a plate of gold with a crown and other regalia, and conveyed them to the Church of the Assumption accompanied by the Grand Equerry, Glinsky, and other important personages of the court. Soon after, the Grand Prince also repaired to the church. He was preceded by an ecclesiastic holding of his hand a crucifix and sprinkling to the right and to the left holy water upon the crowd. Ivan IV, surrounded by all the splendors of his court, entered the church where he was encircled by the ecclesiastics and received the benediction of the metropolitan bishop. A hymn was then sang by the accumulated choirs, which astounded the audience, after which mass was celebrated. In the midst of the cathedral, a platform was erected, which was ascended by twelve steps. 
Upon this platform there were two thrones of equal splendor, covered with cloth of gold, one for the monarch, the other for the metropolitan bishop. In front of the stage there was a desk, richly decorated, upon which were placed the crown regalia. The monarch and the bishop took their seats. The bishop, rising, pronounced a benediction upon the monarch, placed the crown upon his head, the scepter in his hand, and then, with a loud voice, prayed that God would endow this new David with the influences of the Holy Spirit, establish his throne in the righteousness, and render him terrible to evildoers and a benefactor to those who should do well. The ceremonies were closed by an anthem by the choir. The young emperor then returned with his court to the Kremlin through streets carpeted with velvet and damask. As they walked along, the emperor's brother Yuri scattered among the crowd hands full of gold coin, which he took from a vase carried at his side by Michael Glinsky. The moment Ivan IV left the church, the people, till then motionless and silent, precipitated themselves upon the platform, and all the rich cloths which had decorated it were torn to shreds, each individual eager to possess a souvenir of the memorable day. End of chapter 12